The super familiar with the Wilsons podcast. You know that family whose house you hung out in when you were a kid? The house was a little loud and chaotic, but always fun, and sometimes felt more home than home. Well, that's us. We're the Wilsons, and we welcome you into our podcast with silly chat, ridiculous games, and interviews with interesting people. Like a spin doctor. The super familiar with the Wilsons podcast. Welcome home. Try to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a minute. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Car? What do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. (laughs) The Cult Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, will guide you weekly through a sea of hidden gems and obscure films that are destined for rediscovery. And so, without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to The Cult Worthy Classic the cinema podcast dedicated to films made before 1970. It's been a minute since I released the episode, and I am really happy to say that we are back recording, and I've got a very special guest to welcome us back. I've got Patrick of the Vintage Video Podcast on the show. Patrick, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing this morning? Fantastic. Uh, Last time I had you on the main show, we talked about killer robots. Right. Yeah, we talked about uh, Demon Seed. We talked about Westworld, uh, the T-1000. Yeah, it was a great conversation. And it's funny, every time I release an episode like that, I get a lot of, I'm not going to say pushback, but a lot of secondary opinions of why didn't you pick this robot? Of course, Why didn't you pick this robot? Which, you know, is just seeds for future episodes about killer robots. You know, we even mentioned these are not all of them. These are just the ones that we picked, but... Yeah, that was a fun episode and got a lot of great feedback. And I'm so excited that we are like taking a step in a very different direction. <laughs> sure, yeah. For our conversation today. But before we get into that, um, how's the show going? You've been a busy guy from what I can tell. Yeah, um, it's been a little crazy um, because I work um, in the field of, of uh, film trailers. And so it's a busy time of year for us because of CinemaCon. Um, and so it's been a nightmare trying to schedule stuff, but we, you know, the last three weeks we've recorded three episodes each. We're trying to get our, our backlog going again so that we can kind of put things on autopilot a little bit and get, get episodes out regularly without freaking out last minute. But, um, yeah, we've, we've had uh, a lot of good stuff and we're hoping to wrap up 1981 soon. It only took you a few years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just about three years to finish 1981, and then we'll we'll move on to the insane year that is 1982. For those that did not listen to the last episode and may not have heard your podcast, how about you give us a, just a quick rundown of sure. what your show is, man? Like I said, I'm such a huge fan, especially of the format and the uh, the way you tackle these films, so... By all means, go ahead. Well, what we're trying to do is cover the 1980s in full, um, which means every wide release gets an episode devoted entirely to it. Um, For our first year, 1980, that meant 168 episodes. Uh, This year, we're coming up on 168 already, and we still have a lot more to go. And uh, next year is closer to 250. It's going to be a nightmare 1982. But we're trying to cover every movie of the 1980s in chronological order and just point out 
things we noticed that we saw three movies back or a hundred movies back and following trends through the decade. And it's been a lot of fun. And we have a, a little game we like to play called, do you guys recall the last time where I'll bring up something weirdly specific and it turns out that it's been in like two or three other movies that we've covered because these things just uh, echo through the decade. But uh, it's a lot of fun. Through the decades. I, I've been catching that yeah. a lot too as uh, you know, I tack- I jump back and forth between like the 70s, 80s and 90s. And that is one of the things that I think is so entertaining about doing a show based off of obscure cinema, cult films is that you do see a lot of pattern recognition when it comes to plot structure, when it comes to MacGuffins and plot drivers and devices that are used multiple times. I just recorded an episode that hasn't come out yet about the 1987 film No Man's Land with Charlie Sheen. Okay. Which is essentially the godfather of films like Point Break and Fast and the Furious, which you are also familiar with. Yeah. So it's fun to kind of see that where there are some films that people may not have seen or maybe they knew the title, knew the cover work, but did not necessarily know the plot. Right. And when they can go back and revisit or in cases your show and mine, listen to someone talk about it and make those connections for them. That might be the driving point for them to go and actually revisit these films that right, yeah. a lot of people have kind of forgotten about. Even the bad films, we're, we're, we are trying to get people to go and take a look and 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 just enjoy the ridiculousness of it of where, where that happens but there's been a few where we're like this movie got crapped on when it came out and it was great right. and people should go back to it again that's something that comes up all the time in my show too is how the audience is subjective to whatever that particular era is whatever that particular politics are whatever is popular in theaters at the time was a Huge influence on how certain films performed. Right. Uh, I was just talking about this with a guy. We were talking about how test screening cards of like the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even the early 90s, if you go back and read some of those, some of the biggest blockbusters of those decades had terrible test screenings, right. which ended up leading to the studios trimming footage, adding footage, replacing actors, replacing directors, a lot of just tomfoolery and hacking things up in these films that's really based off of sometimes one audience's perception of the film. Right. And I feel that we don't do that as much anymore. It still happens, but I really think that there is an alternate universe out there where original versions of some of these films exist with original stars. Maybe in an alternate dimension, we have Back to the Future with Eric Stoltz instead of Michael J. Fox. Right, yeah. And and there's also the, the phenomenon of um, public opinion being so effectively swayed by the press at the time. Right. Where because we're coming to it 40 years later, we don't know what people have been saying about this movie. We're just right. coming at it, you know, unbiased. Do I like this movie or don't I like this movie? And so when you go and look it up and you're like, wow, this was like, like completely derided by everybody. But... I enjoyed it, and and I think uh, that the press actually has an ability to to turn people against a project sometimes even before it comes out um, in a way that uh, that it's interesting to come back to decades later and be like, I'm not going to look at any of that stuff. I'm just going to watch the movie, and you're you're able to avoid it in a way you couldn't at the time. Well, yeah, and film criticism really isn't looked on as highly and seriously now as it was back then because these days we have. Right audience aggregators and critic aggregators that in so many instances are completely polarized. Right. You know, like an audience score could be in the eighties and nineties percent and the critic scores could be in the thirties and vice versa. 
And one of the things that I've talked about before on the show too is that when people didn't have as much access, let's say with smartphones or laptops where they could watch a trailer or watch a an Instagram or a TikTok of, of someone's experience with a film, a lot of their judgment of what they were going to spend their hard-earned money on in the theater was based off of what the media said, right. what Siskel and Ebert said, what Gene Shalit said. And like you just said, in all those films that you've been reviewing, there are so many films that were just trashed on by critics that now have huge followings, even beyond cult followings. Let's say sleeper followings, where, hey, this was actually a good movie, but it's only getting recognized now 30 years later because someone decided to pull their head out of their ass and watch it and maybe blog about it, and it created a movement. And I love that. I love that we live in that world now. I, the one thing that I that I do feel like kind of uh, has affected people's opinion of film criticism is that now everyone thinks that they're a professional critic and because that everyone has wrong. an outlet to present their opinion on. And right. so it comes to the point where you're like, well, why am I going to listen to Roger Ebert or Vincent Canby when I can just say what I think of the movie? And that's just as important. And it's like, is, is it really like I don't <laughs> I don't pretend that what I do is is as important as a professional critic. No, I agree. And I'm on the same page with you. And that kind of leads us into the film that we're talking about. Um, how big are you on musicals? Are you a musical guy? I am a musical guy. I think, um, in general, I, I have enjoyed more of them than I have not enjoyed. Um, I, and I in really, particular, yeah. in the 60s, I feel like I've I've enjoyed a lot of the musicals I've seen. In, in Especially Oliver is, is one of my all-time favorites. Oh, that's a great. And it's got Oliver Reed, so, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a win right there. I agree with you. And here's here's where... I really faced like a crossroads in my in my teenage and early 20s when it came to my appreciation appreciation of musicals. I was raised as a theater kid. So my mom put me in community theater and local professional theater. I had to be in stage productions and musicals all through my youth. Yeah. Therefore I had a natural aversion to musicals. Interesting. But what I realized was it was stage renditions of said musicals because my brain works cinematically. Sure, I sure. have a hard time with that, let's say, uh, perception of, of reality in a theater, watching something in one frame and allowing to be brought into this world through set pieces and costume changes and performances Sometimes, which vary very differently, because in the world of theater, you get one shot. You don't yeah. get to do take two, take three, take four. You don't have different setups. You don't have yeah. three months to make or more to make a film. And my brain works in that aspect. Why I enjoy cinematic musicals is because you get to throw away all of that patience that you have to have in a theatrical production. When you're going into a theatrical production, you are signing a contract that you are going to wait wait for the curtain, wait for the lights, wait for the scene changes, and some people just don't have the patience for that. Therefore, some musicals, which I love in their cinematic versions, I absolutely hate in their stage versions, because in the cinema, you don't have to worry about that. The whole point is to move you from scene to scene and from song to song yeah. and create more exposition to make the story make sense. So therefore, it took me a long time to realize, yes, I am an appreciator of film musicals, but not theater ones, even if they're based off the same yeah. origin. 
It sounds like that's a little bit of uh, like uh, knowing how the sausage gets made situation too, because because you're involved in the creative process in in your experience. Because I also grew up in in a, a household that appreciated theater, but more on the audience side of it. So mm-hmm. my parents had a membership at a theater in Ventura that we would go and see like four musicals a year, and they would buy the soundtrack every time we'd crank them at home as soon as we got back and and so it, there wasn't a a work aspect to it it was just appreciating and enjoying the music and uh yeah i i feel like um yeah actually being on the stage and making sure the things get done could could very quickly sour you on the experience at least in my experience it did yeah now i'm also a huge fan of the underdog i'm also a huge fan right. of the obscure which is why i do my show and it's kind of the same reason why you do your show yeah absolutely There were musicals that were made by the creative forces that are behind the film that we're talking about today that are considered epic, that are considered masterpieces, that are top tier of cinematic musical. And when you look at the talent behind this one, you would think that if you crunched the numbers and did the homework and just did the basic math, that this should have been along the titles of those. It should be in the pantheon of musicals. But it's not. In fact, it's one of the most critically bashed and the most financially destructive musicals ever made. And that's there's a there's a few reasons to that. It could be timing. It came out right in the time and musicals started dying. Right. But also, it took a lot of risks with its casting. It yeah, took a like lot one of risks singer, I with think, in the whole message. cast. Yeah. So, what film are we talking about today? Today we're talking about. Paint Your Wagon. Come along with Lee Marvin, Ted Eastwood, and Gene Seberg as they bring the free living, free loving California Gold Rush days to life in Paint Your Wagon. I love both of you. But that ain't gonna work, Elizabeth. You can't have both of us. Why not? Why not? Why not? Paint Your Wagon, based on a Lerner and Loeb Broadway musical about a lusty group of people who one day looked civilization in the eye and spit. In some circles, it is considered a, a joke. It is, it is ripe for parody. Yeah. The Simpsons parodied it. We've seen it parodied in, in comic books and in Mad Magazine because it really does not seem like the musical that should exist. I wonder how much of that is just the title's fault too. The the, the title makes it sound like you're literally watching paint dry (laughs) and, and it's two hours and 40 minutes long. So you you sit down to it expecting like, I'm, I'm not going to enjoy this no matter what, there's no way. But, but as millennials, I, I feel like our, our perception of this is this is that movie that Homer rented on accident. And that's all we know of paint your wagon until we see it. I mean, just for fun, when I posted a picture of me watching it on Twitter, I got about a dozen responses of just that, of just Homer watching Lee Marvin singing about what oil paint he's going to use on his wagon, you know? Because the wood is pine. The wood is pine. An unholy carnage of Joshua Logan's Paint Your Wagon. With blood, I bet. That's a pretty sorry-looking wagon you got there, mister. 
reckon it could use a coat of paint. Well, what are we waiting for? Gonna paint our wagon, gonna paint it good. We ain't bragging, we're gonna coat that wood. They're gonna paint that wagon. But this is a fun film, and this is a film that I think that because it's been parodied so much has probably scared several generations since it came out away from actually watching it and enjoying it. Because when you visit this film, thinking about when it came out, thinking about the generation that it was playing to, also the departure from its origin story, which we'll we'll get to later, it is interesting that it hasn't been like rediscovered by more people because I feel these days people are mad about Clint Eastwood spaghetti Western days, his early Western days. People are having a Lee Marvin rediscovery. I mean, I'm seeing absolutely yes, point blank and man who shot Liberty Valance all over people's letterbox and all over their first time watches. Like there is this huge rediscovery of Lee Marvin and this is a film that just doesn't really play like a Lee Marvin film. Yeah, it's amazing this is their only one together because I was looking into it. I guess they they have a documentary credit that they share, but this is the only film that Lee Marvin did with Clint Eastwood. That seems crazy to me. It seems absolutely crazy to me. They were both kind of at their height of their macho Western phase. Yeah. And they were they both in the same this. things, the same kinds of movies. They're, it just seems impossible that they didn't do anything else together. I mean, even if you think about like their 70s and 80s films, you know, when they started going into their more cop drama, where they started doing military dramas, you know, they really had a very similar line of of film roles and characters that they were playing all throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s. And this is the one thing that I think makes this film the most fascinating for me is I grew up in a household where my dad was Lee Marvin. Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson. Right. Nonstop, those three actors were on the TV all the time. Yeah. Any VHS we had that was in my dad's collection was one of those three guys. So I was very well versed in all their serious roles. My dad hated musicals, hated them, but this was one of his favorite movies. Oh, okay. It's really interesting to me because when you think about the way this film is presented, too. Not many musicals can be considered manly musicals. Right, but yeah. But with this story, with these characters, with the message and just the songs and what they're about, this might be the most masculine musical ever made. I'm having trouble coming up with a, a, another example even. So this was your first time watch, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So what was your first impression of it? Actually, let, let's ask this question. What was your perception of the film going in, and then what was your impression of it coming out? Going in, I expected it to just be a Wild West story about two cantankerous guys that learn to get along in the Wild West because of who the leads were. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not expecting that it at all dealt with the gold rush, and and all that stuff was a surprise to me. And so my my first thing always with a musical is that I'm I'm listening for the music, and while the instrumental stuff is fine, the singing is not great. Um, <laughs> and so uh, 
but but that it didn't sour me on it because I like Lee Marvin so much and I like his chemistry with Clint Eastwood here. Although I guess on set they didn't really have the same chemistry and Clint Eastwood got very impatient with Lee Marvin's uh, drunkenness. Yeah, <laughs> official, like actual drunkenness on set for the entire production. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I I really liked the the full cast of it um and the songs are good despite the people singing them i think i would i would rather listen to you know an original cast recording of this and just just hear them in the way that they were originally presented but i guess that's impossible too because there's like five or so songs that were added for the film because it was rewritten so drastically from the original theater performance yeah let's jump on that for a second so the original musical came out in 1951 and has a very different story and yeah. very different characters. Clint Eastwood's role does not exist right. in the original musical. Ben Rumson, played by Lee Marvin, has a daughter. And the daughter is like one of the main focal points of the story. Yeah, and she's not even here. She's not even in this film. He is a loner and cantankerous, like you said, in, in this production. And the original musical dealt a lot with race relations where there was a Mexican minor who had to live outside of the camp yeah. that falls in love with Lee Marvin's daughter. And then the main role played by Gene Seberg is like a minuscule role in yeah. the original production. So when they decided to make this film, they knew that that whole story was kind of antiquated and dated to its time. Uh, there was just too much progressive stuff going on in the 60s to follow that story, they brought in Patty Chayefsky to rewrite the script. Uh, Lerner and Lowe still bring their songs and produced yeah, it, yeah. which I think that is what really brings the energy to this. Their great songs, like you said, maybe not the best performed, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the biggest thing about this is that changing the story to a more, let's say, progressive setting, I think really confused audiences more than it was supposed to attract them, in my opinion. Yeah, you really kind of got rid of the things that the original production was was about, and instead turned it into a musical about male debauchery. Right. And I'm not sure if the women in the audiences those days were ready to like sit through two hours and forty minutes of that because that's really what it is. Yeah, I, I feel like musicals in general often follow it's it's a love story. First right. and foremost, and that is not the focus here. No. Um, and it feels like they took what is, for all intents and purposes, a love story from the theatrical production and changed it into just a Clint Eastwood Lee Marvin comedy that happens to be a musical, like, and and is shot on this epic stage on on location, which looks beautiful. Oh, but, it's so beautiful. Um, the the fact that they they completely changed the focus of the story makes it feel very strange it doesn't feel like a musical in the traditional sense because it doesn't have the emotional backdrop that you're usually seeing in these stories well not only that like it tackles early examples of polyamory right it yeah. tackles uh early examples of let's say what would be considered toxic masculinity at that time of these minors actually portrays a lot of the minors and the males in this mostly male population of this camp as as more gentle people. Like, they are rugged. They are 
dirty and grimy and they're out there digging for gold, but they also have a lot of feminine sensibilities. Right. Like you have a, a prospector stampede when some women show up in town and you're expecting, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. And the first thing they want to do is hold her baby. Like they're, right. they're just like, can I hold the kid? Oh, it's so cute. Yeah. And and that's what I really, really like about this. And that's also why I feel it probably felt so progressive for the time. I feel like this, if it wasn't a musical, if feels like it could have been like a Paul Mazursky script, you know? Sure, having, yeah. Having having like these like little love triangles, a polyamorous relationship between Clint Eastwood, Lee Marvin and Gene Seberg, which does have its detractors from the more sensible people that show up later in the story. Right. But for the most part, the miners are like, yeah, cool, let's go with it. We're we're exploring new territory. We're in the wilderness. We're making yeah. our own laws and rules and stuff. I do think Mazursky probably would have given Seberg more to do. Um, because he would have touched on her her motivations and her, and her uh, thoughts behind the scenes more than than the film does, where I feel like she's a little bit two dimensional the way she's presented in this story. She also has a major tonal shift, like in the right. third act, which I've always had a problem with because she is so I think in love with the freedom of being broken from this polygamous marriage to a Mormon. You know, she gets to be bitted on by right. the men of the camp. Ben Rumson wins her for $800 and finds herself in a situation where, you know, she's just happy to be free. And she has one of the best lines in the movie when they are talking about selling her to the miners. This yeah. is immoral. I hope so. <laughs> the woman's married. No, she's not. We don't recognize plural marriage in California. Then I'll bid $250 in gold for her. $260. $265. Wait a minute. You can't buy a woman for money. You just try and get one without it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what about it, Mormons? Jacob, we need every penny, Jacob. But I can't bear another day of those martyred looks. There, there it is again. This ain't a martyred look, Sarah. This look is pure. Hatred. Ah! Quiet. Brigham Young has 27 wives, and he hasn't had half the trouble with them I've had with the two of you. And simplify your life, Jacob. Sell me. But, Elizabeth, you don't know what you'll get. I know what I've had. I mean, that's a great, I mean, that's a feminist line right there, too. And there is a lot of feminist messages in this movie. Absolutely. That, again, maybe seemed too progressive for the audiences at the time. That's possible, yeah. I mean, this is late 60s. I mean, it's the beginning of the movement a little bit. but It really um, is. The, the audience that are going to see a Lee Marvin, Clint Eastwood movie on a weekend probably aren't, aren't looking for this line. When it comes to the story structure that Patty Chiefsky brings, like I said, I, I feel there is a real exploration of the progressiveness of the time, which kind of contradicts the Learner and Lowe songs. I mean, they did create some new songs for the show, but there is one thing that I didn't notice it when I was younger, but now as I watch things with a more analytic eye, it feels like the set pieces that were created around the songs don't often match what the theme of the song is. Did you have right. that same feeling? Yeah, and a lot of that comes from the fact that, you know, the same songs are being plopped into a completely different story. Right. And so it, it it makes sense that they would feel a little out of place. Um, but yeah, I, I did get the sense a few times where I'm like, this 
feels like it belonged somewhere else or or maybe this is like after a significant re-edit of the film because it doesn't seem like it fits here but the story is fun like i i have yeah. never seen the original production i've only read the synopsis i have listened to the original broadway production before and i'm not sure if i finished it because i was so used to the film like i only knew the sure. film i only knew those songs so then you know when i would hear you know the the song sung by a, a mexican miner I'm like, that's who is that supposed to be? Is that Clint Eastwood? No, that's not Clint Eastwood's role. Right. I mean, it kind of is. Like, like the Julio character is like the closest thing to the partner character. Right. But we don't have, if anything, it, the way this film portrays it, they would accept any nationality into their mind in this, right, yeah. in, in the presentation of this film. But one of the things, too, that I think saves this movie more than anything is its humor. Yes. The movie's hilarious. The movie is full of funny lines, funny songs, and Lee Marvin is a funny guy. He is. He, He's great. He, he has amazing comic timing. He has amazing comic presence, and you wouldn't expect a tall, burly guy like him from Liberty Valance <laughs> to be great at the comical pratfalls that he right. does all throughout the movie. He gets drunk and collapses, falls through tables, falls out of windows from hotels and cat houses and then just gets up and shakes it off with his deadpan expression. Again, that is one of the things that makes this film work for me so much is that the characters, the performances of these people, which are so off type is what really I think holds the film together because at two hours and 40 minutes being kind of like a mishmash of the old and the new versions of the script, it would really be easy for this film to fall apart narratively and in entertainment value. Yeah. I, and I feel like um, my childhood impression of Lee Marvin was that he was always like a grumpy drill instructor type. Right. Um, and so this is against type as far as that, that understanding of his career, but it's also not totally off the mark for him because I guess Clint Eastwood had referred to this as cat Baloo too, because he so much is playing the the kid Shaleen. Uh It's it's basically the same character over again that he had won an Oscar for in that film with um, a beard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that he's just like the sort of perpetual drunk of the Wild West, um, which is a fun character. <laughs> whenever whenever these these uh, these archetypes show up, they're usually enjoyable people. But uh, Lee Marvin does not get enough credit for his comedic timing, especially early in the film when they're discovering the gold mine in the first place in the grave they've dug for Clint Eastwood's brother. <laughs> and he's just like in the middle of his eulogy, suddenly it becomes a roast and then they find the gold and, and they just toss the corpse. They're just like, Oh, never mind. We're not they burying like this guy anymore. Now we're digging him up out gold. of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and it's an interesting thing that you bring up too, that Lee Marvin, not afraid to show his comic chops. I mean, we never really saw Clint Eastwood play for laughs now he was in comedies you know yeah. the any which way you can and any every which way but loose those were funny movies but not because of clint eastwood they right. worked because clint eastwood played himself essentially but you had fun characters like jeffrey lewis and of I course you had lewis clyde so and all of the bikers and you know you had everyone around playing for laughs which was what made that movie work with right. clint eastwood playing the straight man this might be this might be his biggest departure from what you could say the Clint Eastwood archetype that I think I've ever seen. Right. He does play genteel. He does play serious in certain moments. And 
You know, he does have good comic timing for the style of delivery that he has. And I wonder if because the backlash of this film and its box office poison that people called it, I wonder if it scared him away from taking departures than what he was used to. I, honestly, he feels a little uneasy in the role as it is. Um, when he first starts singing the song by the river about the imaginary girlfriend, it reminded me of Sean Connery singing in Darby O'Gill because it's just it feels so out of sorts. It's like this guy doesn't sing. Why is this guy singing all of a sudden? Um, but uh, but then later in the film, he has a line where he's talking to Lee Marvin and he says, oh, no, I, I don't drink and I, and I try not to fight with people. And and you think, oh, that's weird. This is a pacifist character. For Clint Eastwood. <laughs> but then I feel like his ego wouldn't let him just say that line. And he follows it up with, uh, because when I do, I can't stop myself. Like, And then right. Lee Marvin's like, oh, OK, so you're my kind of guy. Like, <laughs> Let's go beat people to death then. Right, right. But you know what? I was actually not totally displeased with his singing voice. No, it's it's not embarrassing, um, but but I do feel like when you get uh, Harv Presnell eventually jumps in as the Rotten Luck Willie character, and you're like, oh, th- that's that's what I was listening for when when I started this movie, and and this is an actual singing voice, but it's the only professional singing voice in the cast. It's true, but I also I feel uh, Lerner and Lowe kind of playing to their characters and maybe the talent that they knew they were going to be working with. Very much like how in My Fair Lady, Rex Harrison's songs are mostly kind of pitter-patter. Yeah. You know, they're really kind of like spoken and talky. They do that a lot with this too, where, you know, they don't really have to hold a note. Yeah. Clint Clint Eastwood probably holds the longest notes. But when you have the songs of like the main characters together, when you have like Ray Walston and Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood in the mind singing the best things in life are dirty. Below there's endless amounts of... Just dirty old trash that turns in a flash to dirty old cash. (laughs) Best things in life are dirty. The worst thing in life is waking up clean without a bean. The best things in life are or Clint Eastwood singing the song about gold fever. They really are more kind of pitter-patter talky songs that kind of play to their limitations as singers. And so it makes you not mind it as much. Yeah. That being said, like you said earlier, when there are vocal moments that require a little bit more, let's say, talent and bravado, those do come off a little bit cringy. Yeah, that I in particular, I felt like Lee Marvin's first song when he goes out drinking and he's paying off his debts with his newfound gold, um, he starts fine because the song is staying really low and he has that super deep voice and it sounds great. Um, and like you said, it's also a little bit just spoken word, not necessarily carrying notes. But then when he gets to the chorus, he fixed up the planet as best as he could. Then in come the people and gum it up good. The first thing you know. They civilized the foothills and everywhere he put hills, the mountains and valleys below. They come along and take them and civilize and make them a place where no civilized person would go. The first thing you know. 
it seems like he gets a little off key and then just stays off key for the rest of the song, which he's not so far off that it's hard to listen to, but it just feels like either this song could have been reworked in a way that might be more in his wheelhouse or they could have just had somebody else with a deep voice do this for him. But, um, but the song in itself, like the lyrics and the music are great. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I think it's a really great movie. I think there are exceptions to that. It didn't have to be two hours and 40 minutes. No, it, didn't it didn't have to have so much, let's say, cinematography that lengthened things out. Um, the version that I have on DVD was the same version that my uh, dad had on Laserdisc back in the day, with a four and a half minute intermission in between. Oh, okay. And on the VHS days, it was just two tapes. And yeah, there was yeah. no intermission. You would just switch the tapes. I never saw this theatrically, but for some people that don't know, back in the 60s and 50s, biblical epics, longer musicals, uh, films like that often had an intermission in between. Yeah. People get more popcorn, go to the bathroom, whatever, and they usually played an overture of, you know, let's say a, a mishmash of the songs throughout. Yeah. And there are movies that I think that intermission is considered like a part of the film. You know, how dare you cut the intermission out of this movie? Right. I, even though I it's think, just black or just the even word though intermission it's just on screen. Black, right. I think the last film that I saw theatrically that had an intermission was Amadeus. When I saw Amadeus in the theater as a kid with my parents, it had an intermission, which I thought was surprising because I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And then going back and watching these original restorations of these movies, like, oh, yeah, well, that was a thing. Which is funny because in the 70s, they try to get away from that. Like, they really try to bring down running times of movies to, like, two hours and under. Yeah. And or or, or the, a lot of the time, even under 90, I think there was studio pressure to keep things under 90. Which is why one of the biggest things about when The Godfather was coming together is they really wanted The Godfather to be 90 minutes, you know? And how do you make that happen? That's it like Weinstein telling Peter Jackson to get Lord of the Rings done in one movie. <laughs> it's like, what? You just do all three stories in one movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so the length is it is intimidating for a first time viewer, I'm sure. I mean, these days people are watching things in segments. You know, they watch 30 minutes, go to work, or check their phone. So it may not be so distracting now. But I mean, how did you feel watching it as a first time with the length and the intermission? Honestly, it didn't it didn't feel three hours long to me. Um, right. I I feel like I just got into the story and was was comfortable with it and and usually with with musicals i'm just you know listening and experiencing it it's 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 not like i'm constantly checking my watch or anything i it it kind of flew by i think it's it's paced well honestly um and uh i I feel like the uh the cinematography goes a long way to making it more watchable so even even when nothing's happening it's at least pretty that's a great point like it's a very big production it feels big even yeah. on my TV, it felt big. There's a lot of production value. There's amazing sets. And it starts off in just wilderness. And the sets progressively get bigger throughout the movie. Right. And then they all get torn down. But it just And that sequence, big. by the way, is so amazing. <laughs> all these buildings collapsing. And and him, uh, Lee Marvin just wandering through it like Buster Keaton as these it really houses is. are so crashing to the street behind Buster him. Buster Keaton-esque, 100%. And, and that's what I was talking about. So the director, Joshua Logan, he had a lot of big musicals under his belt already. It seemed like he was the right guy to do this. But most of those films were shot on studio sets or like right. on locations and castles or manors or something like that. 
There was a big deal for him to shoot up in the Oregon wilderness and build these sets and get people in and out. And one of the things I didn't know about until I started doing the research for this is the fact that they hired a bunch of just local hippies and vagrants and this mountain folk to play these miners, which became... And then they all organized. It became an issue. They organized and uh, could have shut the production down if they wanted to because they were the majority of the cast. Um, which happens when you have you know these, these scenes with casts of hundreds. You know When all these prospectors are coming out of the woodwork to see the two ladies in town, suddenly there's 100 people in one you know, crane shot. And it's like, we have to do what they say or else suddenly this town is going to look weirdly sparse. <laughs> but th- then there were other insane problems with shooting on location. Like I guess there was some terrible flood that knocked out the road to the set. And the production had to rebuild the entire road at a cost of like $10,000 a mile or something like that to get so that the cast could even return to what they'd built to shoot on. This is kind of coming up on the time of, you know, the birth of new Hollywood. This is kind of coming up the time of people being able to do more with less. You know, we're coming up on Cassavetti's time. We're coming up in the early works of Scorsese and Coppola. This is kind of like the death nail in the big budget Hollywood musical I mean, musicals after this, we're starting to see your musicals like Hair and Godspell. That was kind of what we got to deal with in the 70s until like the disco wave came. The film was reviewed originally. One of the biggest things that critics talked about was how it just seemed like such an excess and a waste of resources and a waste of production and blah, blah, blah. I hate that criticism. I hate that criticism, <laughs> that too. Happens, that happens so often. It, and it's like, okay, people read that, then they're instantly kind of taken out of the the reality that the film is trying to create. It's, it really takes you out yeah. of the world because now you're looking at things as dollar signs instead of, oh, this is a mountain town. This is a mountain set. This is a boom town that eventually gets built and then destroyed. Yeah, it kind of sours your expectation and perception of what the film is. But I don't even understand it as a criticism to say, oh, it looks like they spent a lot of money on this movie. And it's like, isn't that a good thing? It doesn't money buy things that make movies better a lot of the time. Like people said the same thing about Heaven's Gate. They were like, look at how overblown this movie is. And they wasted all this money. It's like, did they waste it or did they spend it? Because the movie looks great. And the characters were great. And and everything looks wonderful. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, it feels like something that, studios plant in these articles in a way to bring the budgets down on these movies to make it seem like a big budget is a negative on something like this where it's clearly creatively driven adapted from a celebrated musical it's like yeah spend a lot of money on it oh yeah this movie deserved to exist and it's not a bad thing that they spent money on it looking great like would you rather it looked cheaper is that is that what you wanted from a movie on that note, I'm a Heaven's Gate defender and I'm a Waterworld defender personally. So <laughs> Right. And they're they're both movies that I feel like when the studios felt like the filmmaker was getting out of hand, they planted stories in the press to before the films had even gotten any kind of a public screening to say Hollywood is out of control. These auteur directors don't know what they're doing. We shouldn't be spending money like this on films. And it's like you're telling that to the audience. The audience wants you to spend money on the films. But you're convincing the audience now that it's bad to spend so much money making a movie, even if it makes its money back. Like Paint Your Wagon, notorious flop, right? It's like one of the one of the biggest flops in the history of musicals. And it made $30 million on a $20 million right. budget. That's $10 million yeah, profit. Yeah, they're still holding it up against whatever the big ones were making. Right. And there's movies that aren't musicals that don't get considered flops when they don't make their money back. 100% true. So I just, I, I don't get why 
unless it's studios that are just trying to save money, why anyone would ever consider spending too much money on a movie a bad thing. Because it's like, oh, people got paid. Oh, oh no. no. People got paid a bunch of money. How terrible. And it looks great. <laughs> it, it, right. it, it's not like someone spent and we've heard about these stories and we've seen movies like this sure. where oh that cost 80 million dollars I just watched a 20 million dollar movie that looked so much better like there are right. exactly. examples of that I think the one that I always like to refer to is uh, Peter Hyam's Sound of Thunder 80 million dollar okay. budget but it looks like a video game it looks absolutely <laughs> terrible and it came out 10 years after Jurassic Park it shouldn't have had <laughs> that type of yeah, that type of uh, final project, but that happens. It happens. And bad. I like Hyams. I like Hyams too. Hyams <laughs> is a hero of mine. But hey, everyone has their ups and downs. <laughs> what were your, some of your favorite moments of this movie? Like, what are the memorable scenes for you? Um, my, uh, I have a. I'm going to consult my list yeah. here. Um, that that throwing the corpse up out of the grave was wonderful because they had the ropes that they were using to lower him in, and they just used them to like catapult <laughs> him out. And I feel like even at that point, Clint Eastwood's like, what? There's gold in here? Like, he doesn't care that his brother's body just got <laughs> tossed across the river. Um, I uh, I love the prospectors wanting to hold the baby. That the They Call the Wind Mariah was probably my favorite song in the whole batch. Um, obviously, because it's the one that's getting sung by an, an actual, actual singer. singer. But um, I was also reading in the trivia that Mariah Carey's name, it comes from that song. She was named after that song. Um, which I thought was interesting because it's a, uh, it's all about how the wind mm-hmm. sings and they named it Mariah. I have the line about uh, <laughs> who knows what you'll get. I know yep. what I've had, <laughs> um, which is obviously great. Um, and then uh, I like when, when uh, I, this happens multiple times where he thinks Clint Eastwood has wronged him and, and it comes to blows, but ultimately he, he comes to the, the understanding that no, this guy's a good guy and he's looking out for my best interest basically all the time. But when they're fighting, there's this really great shot where, Lee Marvin gets real up close to the camera and he's making this angry grimace. And then Clint Eastwood's face like impossibly seems to punch out of the camera to hit him in the face and knock him back. Um, and then by the time like the camera backs up enough to see what Clint Eastwood's doing, he's already like turned around walking away, like doesn't even care that he just punched this guy and he's not expecting him to fight back right away. Um, and then <laughs> the stuff with uh, at, at the end when everything's going haywire and the town is completely collapsing, there's, there's two moments that just blew me away. The first one is when people are sinking into this tunnel and the two guys turn around and they notice that the bull that they were having the bull fight with with fell into the tunnel (laughs) with them. Uh, And that's just such an amazing set piece, this bull chasing them through this flooded tunnel underground. Um, But then the Lee Marvin walking through the town as it completely just demolishes behind him. It looks like, you know, and, and the fact that this is all practical, just blows my mind Um, because this is the kind of stuff that they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on in inception. And this movie gets crap for spending 20 in, in the sixties. Like this looks insanely great. And there's so many buildings that come apart in, in such hilarious ways, you know, the faces just fall off of them or they like completely roll over on their sides. Like, I don't even know how they did half of this, but it looks so wonderful. I mean, cause you're a guy that's very familiar with film production and, and set design that's one thing that I noticed in this rewatch is that when those buildings collapse, they're not just shells. Right. They're just not collapsible frames. When the fronts fall off, they are fully decorated rooms and sets inside these buildings that were meant just to be destroyed. Often with people and in it, them. Like they're still cast often in with the building. people in them. And, you know, I can only imagine the setups of that because you get one shot right, exactly. when it comes to that. It's like, you better be on your mark and you better get this right. Because we only get one try at this. 
And I think a fun little side note was uh, infamously Joshua Logan, after that production was done, blew up right. the entire yeah, set. Yeah, he took some TNT like, It was already half set. collapsed anyway and just TNT'd the set and just blew it to hell. And I think that's a great way to kind of like put the 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 icing on the cake right. of a production like that. Get your get all your anger out for for what you've been through on this production. You know, and for me, uh I guess because like I am a guy and as yes, I do love love stories romance, but Gene Seberg's character is just highly forgettable. Yeah. You know, there's almost there's literally moments where I'm just like another Elizabeth scene, you know. <laughs> yeah. I and, I feel like it's it's a little weird because we start the film with her as the second wife of this guy who I don't understand why she would ever have submitted to this role because she's the younger wife. So presumably she came second and she agreed to marry into this marriage. Like it already seems at odds with the character we're setting her up to be. And then later, once she's escaped this polygamous relationship, she pitches a polygamous relationship to these other two guys. She's like, I want to have two husbands, which I understand that the dynamics are different when, when you're, you're the one that, that has multiple partners of the, of the same gender, but, or of the same sex. But, um, the fact that she pitched this and then is so embarrassed by it later when people come to town that that uh, express any kind of religion. It's like, was she religious? Because if she was religious, then she shouldn't be pitching these guys on a, on a thruple. And if she's not, then why does she care what these religious people think? Like, it just seems like there's her character is very inconsistent. And so much of that is not in the original musical that that it just feels like a flaw of the adaptation of the story. Yeah. Like I said, that tonal shift and I, I'm going to play devil's advocate and say that there was probably deeper narrative to that, that we didn't see because it is a Patty Chayefsky script. You know, he likes to connect the dots throughout the movie. And that's why I feel that there's something missing there. There's something that kind of maybe thinks makes you think that she has had an event that made her change her mind. The way I perceived it in the second viewing is that in this town of 400 men, and she's the only woman, that this is the first time in her life that she actually feels free. And because she's been in a polygamous relationship, and that's the whole reason why they are escaping where they're escaping from. They're trying to find new territory where their marriage would not be persecuted. Right. That since that's really all she knows, that is kind of one of the aspects of her life that she thinks that she can work in her favor. You know, she's like, I was the, the second banana wife in this polygamous relationship. But now in this relationship, I'm really kind of the spokesperson of it. Right. I am the leader, you know, cause these two men love me. They adore me. I love them and I adore them. They're sharing everything 50-50 anyway, and we're in the wild, wild west. That is where I feel that character works. That tonal shift when the outsiders come in, I feel that is the introduction of their world and their fantasy collapsing because now society is showing its face in this world that they've created that only has a minute amount of time before it actually collapses. Yeah. So I give it a pass, but I'm not going to just say that it is not without flaw. And it is kind of like an Edenic story that she was living in this, you know, garden with these two guys and she could do whatever she wanted because there was no one there to judge her. And then suddenly judgment arrives and yeah. and an outside perspective infiltrates her own opinion of her own life. But I just wish we'd seen more of her story and, and understood her a little bit better because I feel like she's she's just kind of two-dimensional and she does what 
the guys need her to do in each scene. So for me, I mean, I love so many moments in this scene, but I specifically love the secondary characters. I feel they make this movie work even better. I love Ray Walston's character. I love when the parson comes in the beginning of the, the second act, you could say, and does his No Name City song. Like, that's a great musical number. It's a great song. A lot of great lines in it. You want to see sin of the wickedest kind? Here it is. You want to see virtue left behind? Here it is. Sodom was vice and vice versa. You want to see where the vice is worse? Here it is. I mean, here it is. You want to live life in the rottenest way? Here it is. Women and whiskey night and day? Here it is. You want to embrace the golden calf? Ankle and thigh and upper half? Here it is. I mean, here it is. No name city, no name city. The Lord don't like it here. No name city. And he actually becomes like the major plot driver of the third act. Right, yeah. Like it's things that he does that kind of brings the the film to its uh, fruition. And yeah, and this is a complaint that I make sometimes, and I'm kind of making it now, but it's hard because I'm fifty fifty on it. There may be too many likable characters in this <laughs> film, and then the film doesn't know how to move them on without disappointing you. Yeah. So for example, a lot of the characters that we've grown to love in the first act just end up on a wagon out of town when the gold starts running out. They don't get any kind of fru- you know fulfillment to their story and it leaves you kind yeah. of missing them. And what they do is they try to replace those characters with other colorful characters like the young farmer boy who's addicted to whiskey, gambling, and prostitutes. You know, It's an okay very yeah, quickly, <laughs> like over the course of 24 okay hours. It's character, but it just kind of makes you miss the people that you really built a relationship in that first half. Um, I, I do think it, it is funny that that sometimes it can be a problem that there's no unlikable character or that that everyone has been transitioned from a character that we that represented conflict to suddenly everyone's on the same team and there's there's nothing for any of these people to be worried about. I, I, I call that the, the Ted Lasso conundrum where Ooh. you turn all the bad guys into good guys and then suddenly it's just a no show about a bunch of good guys just hanging out. Right, right. Um, so do you think the film deserved all the hate and the backlash it got? No. Yeah, it was just uh, misunderstood for the time in my opinion. It was the sixth highest grossing movie or the sixth highest grossing musical and the seventh highest grossing film of the year for Paramount. It was in their top 10 movies for the year. And and it was expensive, so it probably got a very wide distribution because they wanted to get that money back. But still, the fact that it could be in their top seven movies and still be looked at like a huge failure just seems crazy to me. And I think a lot of just the apocryphal stories of its production and of its release are the reasons why it was so parodied in the 70s and 80s. And in my opinion, I feel by the 90s, people just forgot about it. Yeah. But we're bringing it back. <laughs> yeah, that, there you that, go. that's the thing. Is like, yeah, it's got one DVD release. It doesn't really stream. It doesn't really play on uh, any of the reputable cable channels. So this is a film that I feel that if you know people start kind of going back and they dig in their collections, or if they see it in a bargain bin, this is worth a watch. It's worth a rediscovery because it is a lot of fun. 
And yeah, there are the weaknesses that you and I just talked about, but there's so much more good for the film that is worth watching. And going back and looking at the aggregators, I didn't even realize it, that this only holds a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes by critics. And that kind of blows my mind. Now, granted, those are probably reviews from the time. Right. Yeah, I was going to say that's got to be contemporary because I don't think that too many people are reassessing this. Agreed. But I mean, there are people that don't dig into the aggregators as much as others do. And at face value, they see 33%. And they're like, oh, nope, not going to bother. Do you have the audience score in front of you? Yeah, so the audience score is 67%, more than double, 5,000 ratings. And that 33% is only based on 18 reviews, which are probably the 18 original reviews of the major publications of the day. I'm sure, yeah. This is just, a, it's an enigma. There's no other musical like this. And there's no other cast like this in a musical that at least as this entertaining. I've seen lots of... You know, other musicals that had big names in it that just don't work. I'm going to go ahead and throw The Wiz out there. You know, The the Wiz does not work for me. I like the music a lot. but I like um, the music a lot, too. That's a situation <laughs> where I feel like not enough money was spent on the production and um, that it suffers. And it's not, a, it's not a problem if we spent more money on The Wiz and making it look nicer. Oh, and the biggest conundrum of that is like Sidney LeMay directing The Wiz. Okay. Yeah, it's a weird choice. <laughs> it's a weird choice. <laughs> For sure. But yeah, no, this this has the right people. This has the right production value. This has the right music. It's just one of those ones that just didn't hit right at the time and has kind of disappeared. So like I said, I champion this film and I I want more people to watch it and go revisit it. And I think, I think it'll show that Lee Marvin was more than just this one note character that people consider him to be. Right. And there's, I don't know a lot of people who have seen Cat Baloo and his role of Kid Chalene in that. And to me, that would be another film that you could follow up this one with and go back and watch him in another role like this. And that's a fun yeah. film, too. It's just fun. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I was reading that um, they had to like age him up a lot for this part because he's only like six years older than Clint Eastwood, but he looks like he could be his dad in this movie. Yeah, he's he was only 44 when he made this and he's one of those actors where I feel like okay then he was perpetually He's 44 in this movie. He was 44 Jesus. in this movie and he's one of those people I feel like was always perpetually 44. Because <laughs> he looks 44 yeah, in Liberty Valance funny. and he looks 44 in Delta Force with Chuck Norris like he just he, Does he just have Steve Martin's hair jeans? <laughs> Did he have white hair his entire career? I saw a movie uh called The Shack Out on 101 from the 1950s this little noir film with him in it. Yeah. And he's a young man, and the dude is gray as a young man. So, yes, wow. I think so. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, any last final thoughts on Paint Your Wagon? No, I, I think that about covers it. I, I did enjoy this. I'm, I'm glad that you reached out to me for this one because, um, you know, obviously it felt like a left-field pitch, but I, I had not seen it and had meant to because I want to know every reference that The Simpsons is making. So yeah. um, I'm glad that I that I crossed this one off the list, and I and I really did enjoy it. Yeah, it's fun. I would love to see a Blu-ray release of this one because the DVD that I have is good. It's really a well-produced transfer, but I really want to see more behind-the-scenes stuff. I want to see production art. I want to see the things that are in, let's say, the apocryphal stories that we read about either in Wikipedia or other research resources. There's a deeper story here, and I want to know more about it because, man, the, the film is just a lot of fun, and it needs to be revisited or rediscovered oh one other thing i did want to mention that um and i i was curious if this was intentional what do you think um because it as we mentioned there there is no partner character in the original story and so instead of this town being called no name they name it after rumson 
do you think that the town is called No Name as a reference to the Man with No Name trilogy to play off of the success of that film? Because the Mexican title of this movie is The Legend of the City with No Name. Yeah, I, I think that they probably did a little bit on purpose. Like what I read, I feel is kind of apocryphal. But there is, there is even a line in the movie where at the very end he asks, hey, what the hell is your name? Right, anyway? yeah. You know, because the whole movie, they just call him partner. Yeah. You know, so I, I think, yeah, there's probably a little nod to that. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's something worth looking into. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, I always go to the dad joke when he says it's Sylvester Newell with one L. And I wanted him to say, like, is the L in Sylvester or Newell? Like, <laughs> where is the L in your name? Like Ben Rumson could spell Newell anyway. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, what you got coming up on your show, man? This will be out very quickly from the recording, so it's not like we're talking in the past. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, well, we're uh, as of this recording, we'll be posting Roar in the next couple hours. Um, that's the Tippy Hedron Crazy Lion movie. And then uh, we just last night recorded a double of Shock Treatment, which is the sort of unofficial sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show, and uh, a movie called Saturday the 14th, which is a Friday the 13th parody film that in no With way Richard parodies. Benjamin. Yeah, Richard Benjamin. <laughs> I love that guy in everything he does. And this is no exception. He's great. It's just the rest of the movie, I would say, is probably not worth your time. But um, so, yeah, that's what, that's what we have coming down the pipe uh, in, in the short run. I'm excited for your shock treatment episode. I did one back in the summer. It was a Richard O'Brien double feature, which we did shock treatment and the return of Captain Invincible. Oh my and god! <laughs> yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was one of my more uh, popular episodes. But again, shock treatment is the one that still a lot of people don't know about. Right. And in my opinion, I have more fun with it than Rocky Horror. Rocky Horror is a better film, but I have more fun with shock treatment. That's always been my kind of opinion with that. I won't go that far, but I did enjoy <laughs> some of the music in uh, in shock treatment. Um, I didn't even remember that Richard O'Brien was in Captain Invincible. Does that have a Blu-ray? That doesn't, right? It just it came out this last year. Oh, I really? It, and that's why we watched it. Yeah. So Richard O'Brien did the music for it. So he wasn't in it, but he did the music. And oh, okay. It's very obvious. Okay. Interesting. They are Richard O'Brien songs. <laughs> yeah. I can still remember how shocked I was when the first song started in that movie. And I was like, this is a musical? <laughs> on top of everything that's already going on at the same time? Great, great stuff. Well, so everyone, yeah, please go subscribe, like, rate, review the Vintage Video Podcast. It's definitely one of my favorite cinema podcasts out there. And Patrick, you're one of my favorite guests to have on the show. So thank you so much for jumping on this one. And I can't wait to have you on more. Well, thank you so much for the kind words. And I, I cannot wait to be back. So everyone, like I said, you can review, rate, and subscribe to both of our shows. You can also find links to Patrick's show on my website, thecultworthy.com, in the Cult Worthy Partners page. And Patrick, I will see you later. All right. Thank you so much. How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. No, wait a minute. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Uh, Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Car? What do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs>